Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 17th episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series I'll be telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game from the mob game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. In the aftermath of the Hillsborough disaster, a slowly dawning realisation that football in this country had to change became a matter of urgency. New laws meant that clubs would have to convert to all-seater stadia whether they liked it or not. A wave of unexpected optimism blew through the English game. At the same time, though, there was a power grab being ushered through under the guise of this renewal. Times were changing at a dizzying pace. Professional football was being reinvented. Some of these changes were for the better, but some were for the worst. This is the story of football in England and Wales between 1996. The lazy assumption would be that the fallout from the Hillsborough Stadium disaster cost Liverpool the 1989 Football League Championship, but that wasn't the case. In the FA Cup, Liverpool won an emotionally charged rematch of their semi-final against Nottingham Forest at Old Trafford to set up an FA Cup final against Everton, and in the league, they returned to action on the 3rd of May 1989, with another night of high emotion at Goodison Park, and a goalless draw against an Everton team that felt more like neighbours at this time than rivals. Despite the small fixture backlog though, Liverpool kept winning, their next four matches in a row to be precise, including a 5-1 win against West Ham United in their penultimate match, setting up what would turn out to be one of the most dramatic last day of the season fixtures that the First Division had ever seen. Three of those five goals against West Ham had come in the last ten minutes, and they had nudged Liverpool ahead of their nearest title rivals, Arsenal, on goal difference. Arsenal now had to travel to Anfield on Friday the 26th of May. Anything less than a two-goal defeat would return the league title to Anfield. A two-goal win would send the league title to Highbury on goals scored. Anything less would make Liverpool the first club to win the double twice. Six days earlier, Liverpool had won a sombre but thrilling FA Cup final against Everton by three goals to two after extra time. To say that it was a nervy night at Anfield would be something of an understatement, and the volume turned up a level when Alan Smith gave Arsenal the lead seven minutes into the second half. Liverpool hung on, and it looked as if they were going to take it by one goal on goal difference. But then, in stoppage time at the end of the match... 
Arsenal come streaming forward now in surely what will be their last attack. A good ball by Dixon, finding Smith for Thomas, charging through the midfield. Thomas, it's up for grabs now. Thomas, right at the end. An unbelievable climax to the league season. Well into injury time, the Liverpool players are down absolutely abject. Aldridge is down, Barnes is down, Dalglish just stands there. Arsenal had won their first league title in 18 years. Liverpool did win the first division title the following year, but this would be, at the exact time of writing, their last league championship to date. In attempting to qualify for the 1990 World Cup finals in Italy, Wales were placed in a group alongside the Netherlands, West Germany and Finland, finishing bottom, with just two points from their six matches. England, however, made it through, although things were a little tighter than they might have liked. There were three four-team groups in the UEFA qualifiers for Italia 90, and only the two runners-up with the best records from these three groups would go through. England and West Germany qualified, whilst Denmark missed out by a point. Seeded in the draw, England went into the finals in a slightly subdued state. The tabloid press had been gunning for Bobby Robson since England's failure to collect a point at Euro 88, and this reached a crescendo in the build-up to the finals, leading to the Suns in the name of Allah Go headline after a lacklustre warm-up match against Saudi Arabia. This treatment set in stone a now familiar relationship between the England manager and the tabloid press. Robson's team, built around the goals of Gary Lineker, the erratic but brilliant Paul Gascoigne and the wing play of Chris Waddle, limped through the first stage. Two uninspired draws against the Republic of Ireland and the Netherlands, followed by a 1-0 win against Egypt to scramble through to the second stage. This torpor continued into the second round for 119 minutes before David Platt pulled a pearl from the swine a volley on the turn which abruptly changed the mood against Belgium. Their opponents in the quarterfinals didn't have the best player on the planet, 
but they did have virtually the whole planet on their side. One can argue all night over whether England were lucky against Cameroon or not. They needed two penalties to edge through after extra time, but both were validly awarded. Cameroon were excellent, but ultimately failed by their recklessness in defence, and Gary Lineker was experienced enough to be the beneficiary of it. Despite the empty seats in the newly built Stadio delle Alpe in Turin, the semi-final between England and West Germany took on an epic edge. West Germany were a little lucky with their goal. England's, a swivel and turn from Lineker, was brilliant. Both sides came close, but England probably shaded it. Chris Waddle almost scored from 45 yards. Paul Gascoigne picked up a second yellow card and cried on the pitch. This match probably contains more iconic moments than the 1966 World Cup final between the same two teams. It had long-term ramifications too. Gascoigne became a superstar. Gaza was born. The Italian state broadcaster RAI had invested in the best cameras they could. For the first time, viewers could see close up the blood, sweat and tears of the players in a way they'd never really been able to before. With the benefit of hindsight, you can see the first flickerings of modern football solidifying. They couldn't, however, avoid a penalty shootout, and of course, England lost. Stuart Pearce's weak penalty kick was saved. Chris Waddles was skied over the crossbar. It's difficult to remember a time when England didn't have psychological issues with penalty shootouts, but going into this one, no one really knew which way it would go. The inferiority complex had yet to germinate. England had outperformed in getting this far in the first place, and left the tournament having given its winners much more of a game than Argentina did in a dismal final. The trope that it was the real World Cup final that summer remains a popular one, but this is based on the quarter and semi-finals alone. The group stages are best forgotten. Robson left after the tournament to take up a new job in Lisbon with Sporting, and was replaced by Graham Taylor, who'd just taken Aston Villa to second place in the first division. What a responsibility for Chris Waddle now. The Ordner knows that if he keeps Waddle out here, Germany are in the final, and England are out. Would you want to be Chris Waddle now? The changing mood at home brought about by what was perceived as a highly successful World Cup finals campaign also spread to the club game. The European club ban was lifted in 1990 to general rejoicing. English football has stepped back into the sunshine, said the then Football Association chairman Bert Millichip. We've been in a dark tunnel for a long time and at times we couldn't see the light at the end of it. Josef Fengloss, the manager of Aston Villa, one of the teams back in European competition, echoed wider feelings. Europe has been missing English teams. It has been like bread without the butter. Liverpool would serve a ban for one further year. UEFA had their own reasons for starting to admit English clubs beyond extending a hand of friendship. The European Cup had begun in 1955 in a very different world, and by 1992, 
both the spirit of the age, this was the year of the signing of the Maastricht Treaty and the Single European Act, the first major revision of the 1957 Treaty of Rome, and by the desire of the bigger clubs to grow television revenues. The last iteration of the European Cup was played in May 1992 at Wembley, where 70,000 people saw Barcelona beat Sampdoria by a goal to nil to lift the trophy for the first time. Despite this optimism, however, cold winds continued to blow through the lower divisions of the English and Welsh game, thanks to a combination of a greater polarisation of resources and sheer bad management. In 1981, Newport County, as winners of the Welsh Cup, were playing in the European Cup Winners' Cup, where they lost 3-2 on aggregate to Carl Zeiss Jena in the quarter-finals, with only a questionable goal-line decision denying them a high-profile semi-final with Benfica. The club was taken over by an American businessman called Jerry Sherman, who in 2007 went to prison in the US for defrauding the parents of a junior hockey team, and County were similarly mismanaged. Relegated from the 3rd Division in 1987, and in 1988, they finished bottom of the 4th Division of the Football League with just 25 points and were relegated into the non-league game. The club sold their Somerton Park home to the council to try and ease their burden, but failed to finish their first season in the GM Vauxhall Conference. They were expelled from the division with their results expunged as they went out of business on the 27th of February 1989 with debts of £330,000, and a new club, Newport AFC, was formed at the bottom of the pyramid. 1992 brought two further bankruptcies to the lower divisions of the Football League. Fourth Division Aldershot had been in serious financial trouble since the late 1980s, and on the 31st of July 1990, the club wound up in the High Court as the official receiver condemned them as hopelessly insolvent, with debts of £495,000. However, the winding-up order was lifted a week later, when a 19-year-old property developer called Spencer Trithui paid £200,000 to save the club and allow them to start the new 4th Division campaign. It soon emerged, however, that Trithui didn't have the funds to keep the club running, and he was dismissed from the board after just three months. Aldershot struggled on until the 25th of March 1992, when they finally went out of business and were obliged to resign from the Football League. They were followed the following August by Maidstone United. Maidstone had only been promoted into the Football League in 1989, having already sold their ground and moved to ground share at nearby Dartford. Purchasing a piece of land east of Maidstone for £400,000 with a view to building a new stadium on it, but without any planning permission in place. The gamble backfired, and the club's planning application to build on the land was turned down by the local council. With debts of over £650,000 and only two registered players, the club limped into the 1992-93 season, but were unable to fulfil their fixtures. After a desperate plan to move the club to Tyneside and merge with non-league club Newcastle Blue Star was obviously rejected, Maidstone United resigned from the Football League and went into liquidation on the 17th of August 1992. All three of these clubs have since been revived, 
with Newport County and Aldershot Town now back in the Football League and Maidstone United playing in the National League. But it took each of them a long time to get back to where they are today. Jim Thompson spent nearly 20 years fighting to get Maidstone into the Football League. It was he who'd masterminded the non-league pyramid system, enabling the Vauxhall Conference champions to win automatic promotion to the 4th Division. His beloved Maidstone achieved that dream in 1989. But three years on, the club are on the brink of extinction. And a quick glance at the local paper headlines would appear to confirm that Thompson has lost his biggest battle of all. This is where he was defeated. Bounded by the M20 motorway, Woodcut Farm at Hollingbourne was to be the site of a spectacular new home for the club, which so far has spent its entire football league career sharing the Watling Street ground of non-league Dartford 30 miles away. Falling gates meant a return to Maidstone was fast becoming a financial necessity. The plans for the new stadium at Hollingbourne were ambitious. All-seater with a 10,000 capacity. The development appeared to have the tacit approval of the powers that be and was geared to the community, with plans also for a cinema, hotels and a 10-pin bowling alley. It looked as if the club's gamble in selling its old ground in the town at London Road in 1988 to the MFI furnishing chain was finally going to pay dividends. The £2.8 million would pay for the stones to come home, their long search for a new headquarters apparently over. But Thompson's calculations failed to appreciate that the council planning office, headed by this man Trevor Gasson, might not be quite so keen. The club lost the planning application and are in no doubt as to who they believe are the real culprits. In Wales, meanwhile, one of international club football's strangest anomalies was coming to an end. The League of Wales was formed in October 1991 by Alan Evans, Secretary-General of the Football Association of Wales, as he believed that the Welsh international football team was under threat from FIFA. The FAW, along with the other three home associations, had a permanent seat on the International Football Association board, which determines the laws of the game internationally. Evans believed that other FIFA members were resentful of this and were pressing for the four associations to unite into one combined United Kingdom association. The new league began in August 1992. Because of historically poor north-south transport links within Wales, though, the strongest teams in the country had always played in the English leagues. Six Welsh clubs have been or are members of the Football League, whilst many others competed in the Northern Premier League and the Southern League. Bangor City, for example, were found the members of the Alliance Premier League in 1979, before transferring to the new League of Wales in 1992. The formation of the league saw the start of a bitter dispute between the FAW and those clubs who wanted to remain part of the English football pyramid. The IRA 8, as they became known, consisted of Bangor City, Barry Town, Carnarfon Town, Colwyn Bay, Murphatidville, Newport, Newtown and Rill. At the time, Cardiff City and Swansea City and Wrexham were playing in the Football League and the FAW decided to allow those teams to continue to play in the English system. The success of these clubs in the Welsh Cups meant that they frequently competed in the European Cup Winners' Cup. Prior to the inaugural season, 
Bangor City, Newtown and Rill reluctantly agreed to play in the League of Wales. Because of FAW sanctions, the remaining five clubs were forced to play their home matches in England. Following a season in exile at Worcester City, Barry Town joined in 1993. A court ruling in 1995 allowed the remaining four clubs to play their home matches in Wales while still remaining within the English system. Despite this victory, Carnarfon Town decided to join the League of Wales in 1995. Colwyn Bay continued in the English pyramid for a further 24 years before transferring, leaving only two of the original IRA 8 remaining, Newport County and Merthyr Town, the successor club to Merthyr Tidville following that club's liquidation in 2010. Everything else in 1992, however, was put into the shade by the arrival of the Premier League. Talk of a Super League of elite English clubs had been frequently mentioned by various footballing bodies and by the media since the middle of the 1980s. The fundamental difference between the old Football League and the Breakaway League would be that the money in the Breakaway League would only be divided between the clubs active in that division – whereas under the previous arrangements it had been shared between all football league clubs across all four divisions. The first major step to this formation occurred in October 1990, when the managing director of London Weekend Television, Greg Dyke, met with the representatives of the big five clubs, David Dean of Arsenal, Philip Carter of Everton, Noel White of Liverpool, Martin Edwards of Manchester United and Irving Scholar of Tottenham Hotspur. The meeting was to pave the way for a breakaway from the Football League. Dyke believed that it would be more lucrative for ITV if only the larger clubs in the country were featured on national television and wanted to establish whether the clubs would be interested in a larger share of television rights money. The plan was drawn up for a Premier League of 18 clubs to be created in time for the 1992-93 season, although recently announced plans to increase the first division from 20 back to 22 clubs for the 1991-92 season would still go ahead, as the creation of the Premier League had not yet been confirmed by this stage. However, 14 of the 22 clubs who would be competing in that season's first division had already agreed to form a breakaway league of their own if the Football Association's bid to create a breakaway league failed. The five clubs decided it was a good idea and decided to press ahead with it. However, the league would have no credibility without the backing of the Football Association. 
so Arsenal's David Dean held talks to see if the FA were receptive to the idea. The FA did not enjoy a particularly amicable relationship with the Football League at the time and considered it a way to weaken the Football League's position. Football League president Bill Fox even described the FA's plan to form a breakaway league as an attempt to hijack the top division of the Football League. ITV, who had sown the seeds of the breakaway in the first place, offered £205 million for the television rights and later increased their offer to £262 million. But Trevor East of ITV Sport overheard Alan Sugar, whose Amstrad company made satellite broadcaster Sky's receiving equipment, on the telephone speaking to owner Rupert Murdoch at the Royal Lancaster Hotel in London in May 1992 advising an increased bid for the television rights. Sugar is alleged to have told Murdoch to blow them out of the water. Sky, who saw this as an opportunity to lure customers to their loss-making satellite service, bid £304 million and won the contract, even though this wasn't the deal that the biggest clubs really wanted. On the 27th of May 1992, the Premier League was officially formed, with the first fixtures scheduled for the 15th of August. The old second division would be renamed Division 1, the third division would become Division 2, and the fourth would become Division 3. The three-up, three-down system of promotion and relegation, which was first established in 1974, would continue in the future, as would the Football League playoffs. Sugar was the only chairman of a Big Five club to vote in favour of Sky's bid, The other big clubs were reluctant to accept it due to it being the non-terrestrial television service and because Sky hadn't pledged to feature their games more regularly. There hasn't been a live free-to-air top-flight football league match on television in England since. Three days after the first Premier League fixtures were played, Maidstone United folded. This is Sky Sports, a part of the British Sky Broadcasting Network. Sky Sports proudly presents FA Premier League Football. A whole new ball game, Ford Super Sunday. Exclusively live from the city ground, Nottingham Forest versus Liverpool, in association with Fosters. Yes, we're alive and kicking with the hot shots of Nottingham Forest. Taking on mighty Liverpool, it's Clark against Sunes in the Battle of the Giants. Sunday. Nottingham, one of the prettiest cities in the country. A sporting tradition here stretching all the way back to Robin Hood. The River Trent cuts through the middle of the city. On the one side, Notts County. On the other, Nottingham Forest, the home of the former European champions. City ground looks well, bathed in sunshine. 
start of a brand new season. Not too many in now. There will be later in the afternoon. It's a sellout. Here we go. Weekends will never be the same again. We're here for the next five hours with Super Sunday. The centrepiece, Nottingham Forest against Liverpool. The match kicks off at four o'clock. Delighted to be part of the FA Premier League. It's a whole new ball game for all of us. And remember, this is the only place you'll see live Premier League football. The whole new ball game was here. But in truth, it didn't land fully formed on the opening day of the first Premier League season no matter how much historical revisionists might want us to believe otherwise. In the slipstream of England's semi-final defeat to West Germany in the 1990 World Cup Finals, football became fashionable. Arguably, this was the first time that this had happened. Crowds had hit high levels in the immediate post-war years, but growing in popularity isn't the same as becoming fashionable. World in Motion... England's World Cup song for that tournament reached number one in the UK single charts, elements of football's fanzine culture, which had kick-started with the launch of When Saturday Comes in 1986, began to seep their way into the game's mainstream culture. Suddenly, the golf club feel of television shows like ITV's Saturday lunchtime programme Saint and Greavesy started to feel extremely dated, and in 1992, when ITV lost the rights to top-flight football, it was axed. BBC Two briefly experimented with this culture with a magazine show called Standing Room Only, which ran for three series between 1991 and 1994. And in January 1994, they began Fantasy Football League, which ran for three years off the back of the emerging lad culture of the time. Time now for the supporter loo. Standing Room's very own travelling video booth, when you can have your say about your game. I'd like to talk about the issue of racism amongst football circles at the moment. Leicester has a problem and I'm sure every other club has a problem. And I think it's the responsibility of the clubs, its community liaison groups and even unofficial fanzines to address the issue. I'm going to Leeds in the summer for trials. And I would like people to go in easier in tackles because if they win too hard they might break people's legs and people don't like that. I'd just like to say I think it's absolutely disgrace the amount of people who live in the Wrexham area who go to watch Manchester United and Liverpool in matches. Then it should get behind the home team. They're an absolute disgrace. Sky's ruining the game. One thing that I really want is equality on the terraces. I'm not your darling, I'm not your love. I don't appreciate being asked to get them out for the lads. All I want is to be left to enjoy my football. And if you don't leave us alone, you'll be on the receiving end of a free kick where it hurts. Cantona, what a traitor. I can't stand the bloke. What is he doing going to the scum? I think ticket touts are disgraceful because they deprive the normal fans of a club of a ticket for, say, a cup final because they sell their tickets at extortionate prices. On the pitch, meanwhile, there was a vacancy at the top of English football as Liverpool's star began to fade after a decade and a half of unprecedented success at the top of the first division. After they won their last league title in 1990, Arsenal won it the following year, and they were followed in 1992 by Leeds United, 
who had only been promoted back to, to the top flight two years earlier, after eight years away. The first Premier League champions, Manchester United, had been edging towards their first league title since 1967 for several years. In 1990, they won the FA Cup for the first time since 1985. The following year, they won the European Cup Winners' Cup. In 1992, they were overhauled by Leeds United after winning just three of their last 11 matches of the season. In 1993, however, manager Alex Ferguson, who'd been in the job since 1986, finally got the balance right. And the following year, they completed the League and Cup double, winning the league title at a canter and then beating Chelsea by four goals to nil at Wembley to win the FA Cup. The following season, however, came an interregnum. When Blackburn Rovers were promoted into the Premier League in 1992, it was the first time the club had played in the top flight since 1964. Their promotion, however, was not that much of a surprise. Steel magnate Jack Walker had first become involved with Blackburn in 1988, donating building materials for the new Riverside stand at Ewood Park. It's also thought that his money was used to pay for the acquisition and wages of Osvaldo Ardiles and Steve Archibald during the 1987-88 season. Walker took full control of the club in January 1991 and within his first three years he spent £25 million on new players. This included breaking the British transfer record twice signing Alan Shearer from Southampton for £3.3 million in 1992 and Chris Sutton from Norwich City for £5 million in 1994. The Ewood Park ground was rebuilt at a cost of more than £20 million to give it a capacity of just over 30,000 with new training facilities and a youth academy. Kenny Dalgleish, who'd surprisingly quit Liverpool in 1990, was installed as manager. But they did it. At the end of the 1994-95 season, with Shearer having scored 34 goals, Blackburn Rovers became the champions of England for the first time since 1913, despite losing on the last day of the season at Liverpool. Few seemed to understand at the time that Walker's time pouring money into Blackburn would prove to be a canary in the coal mine, for what Premier League football would become in the 21st century. He'll be hoping to be in the England party for the summer tournament. Remember, of course, this isn't the end of your live football on Sky Sports. His Redknapp! Oh! Jamie Redknapp! Tim Flowers picks it out of the Blackburn net. Well, I said it doesn't matter what happens here, Mark. I think that proves it. It's what happens at Upton Park, and that roar from the Blackburn fans tells us it's all over at Upton Park, and Blackburn are few sure the champions. They are. What a season, and what a finish to it. Blackburn Rovers are the champions, though it's defeat for them here at Anfield in the most dramatic of manners. It had been strongly implied that the formation of the Premier League would be to the benefit of the England national team. But by the end of 1993, it was already starting to feel as though this had been somewhat overstated. 
England limped through the qualification group for Euro 92, scoring just seven goals from their six qualification matches against the Republic of Ireland, Poland and Turkey, securing their place with a 1-0 win in Turkey in their final match, as Ireland and Poland played out a goalless draw in Dublin. Once there, they failed to impress again, with two goalless draws against Denmark and France, before losing 2-1 to the host nation Sweden, even after having taken a fourth-minute lead. Wales, meanwhile, came close yet again. A 4-1 defeat in their penultimate match against Germany proved to be their undoing, but they finished the group stages just one point behind the world champions, having beaten them in Cardiff earlier in the campaign. Wales's 1994 World Cup qualifying campaign saw heartbreak again. They went into their final match against Romania knowing that a win would send them through. They fell behind in the first half, but with just over an hour played they drew level with a goal from Dean Saunders and minutes later won a penalty kick. Paul Bowden stepped up to take it and hit the crossbar. Romania went on to win by two goals to one and Wales were out yet again. It's a good one. Young. Speed in by Saunders. 1-1. Dean Saunders, 14th goal for Wales. He got the breakthrough against Cyprus. He's got maybe a crucial one now. Came from the free kick, which was excellently struck by Ryan Giggs. There were problems for Romania from that point on. Speed got up well. And he comes now from Young. This is Speed. And Saunders with the flick. Brunia nowhere. Well, it's like I said before, if you get a quality ball in, you're going to cause problems. And that's one of the first quality balls they've knocked in. And Mervyn uh, Melee, good challenge in, an excellent finish by Saunders. It's all alive again at the National Stadium. Goss. Speed. Was he held? Was he held? Yes! Penalty! So often in the past, Wales have suffered because of penalties in vital matches. Twice against Scotland. And now they're quite rightly given a penalty by a referee who was superbly placed and gave the award in an extremely calm fashion. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I don't think there's any doubt about that penalty. Wales with the chance to lead 2-1. Paul Bowden to take it. Fire, I think, a little touch from Prunia. Such opportunities cannot be spurned. It's so cruel. It had to be taken, but it wasn't. Meanwhile, England's 1994 World Cup qualifiers had turned out to be an unmitigated disaster. A newly expanded UEFA now required 10 group matches with two qualifying places available. But with Graham Taylor's team still in decline, just about everything that could go wrong did. They started with a lethargic one-all draw with Norway, 
but after expected wins against Turkey and San Marino, they then threw away a two-goal lead at home against the Netherlands, drew in Poland and lost 2-0 in Norway. With the press now having completely turned against Taylor, a comfortable home win against Poland meant that they needed a result from a trip to Rotterdam to play the Netherlands to stand any reasonable chance of qualifying for the finals. It didn't come. They lost the match 2-0, despite a foul that looked a clear red card not being given against the Dutch with the score still goalless, and with the chances of qualification having effectively disappeared, their final match away to San Marino started with a sloppy back pass allowing Davide Gautieri to score after just 8 seconds, a goal which remained the fastest scored in a World Cup match until 2017. England bounced back to win that game 7-1, but it was a hollow victory. Press evisceration of Taylor had turned into outright mockery, and Taylor, a good man and an excellent coach, who was the wrong man for the England job at that time, resigned. The hapless nature of the campaign was later captured for a Channel 4 documentary broadcast the following year. The 1994 World Cup Finals would become the first without any of the home nations since they rejoined FIFA in 1946. Oh, fuck it. Do I not like that? So go. What a fucking ball. What a ball from Desterbans and Lambans. What a fucking possession as if it's from our free kick we've come square and ball in here Dezen Barnes is going to think hey fucking ball hey? you talk to you fucking blue in the face don't you there was good reason for the FA's appointment of a replacement for Graham Taylor to have a sense of urgency about it Following the decision to award the 1996 European Championships to England, the team's next truly competitive match would be the opening game of that tournament. They went with the Tottenham Hotspur manager, Terry Venables. Wales would not be joining them at the finals. Despite being seeded second in their qualifying group, they won just two of their ten matches, including a 5-0 defeat in Georgia, home and away losses to Bulgaria and an away defeat to Moldova. They finished 14 points adrift of the qualifying places. There was also reason to be nervous about how this tournament might play out off the pitch. Hooliganism had diminished a little for domestic matches due to better stewarding and more sophisticated policing, but it was still there, and when an England-friendly match in Dublin in January 1995 had to be abandoned after 27 minutes due to persistent violence, there were questions being asked over whether England should even be hosting the tournament in the first place. By the summer of 1996, though, much of this was half forgotten. England kicked off their campaign in an uninspiring manner, huffing and puffing their way to a 1-1 draw against Switzerland. Their next match was a must-win game for several reasons. Quite aside from the disappointing Switzerland result, it was against Scotland, the old enemy, the oldest fixture in international football. It took 40 minutes for the game to come to life when Alan Shearer scored with a close-range header. But when Scotland won a penalty kick with just over 10 minutes to play, 
it looked as though familiar demons were raising their heads again. This time, however, luck was on England's side. Gary McAllister's penalty kick was saved by David Seaman, and within a minute Paul Gascoigne was rolling back the years with a moment of joyous brilliance, lobbing the ball over Colin Hendry and driving it in to wrap the match up. That's a lovely ball by McAllister to McCall. And the cross finds Jury. Penalty! Penalty to Scotland. Tony Adams on Gordon Jury. And for the second week running, England possibly concede a winning position by conceding a penalty kick. Well, it's amazing, isn't it? Didn't make contact with the ball, and I think it was a correct decision. Well, it was Turkil Naz last week. It's Gary McAllister this week. Oh, saved by Seaman! Gary McAllister stunned by a wonderful reaction save. And England are still in front. Scotland's chance gone. Here's the corner. Hendry. Free kick to England. Oh, David Seaman, the hero. Well, it's a stunning save. He decides to go that way, almost in the middle, got his elbow to it. Have to feel sympathy for Gary McAllister, and it's such an important penalty, but wonderful goalkeeping. I think uh, Tony Adams, though, you know, if you're going to make a tackle in the penalty area, you, you can't. Go on the sliding tackle unless you're sure you're going to make contact with the ball. Gordon Jury just toe-ended it past him, then came the contact, and I do think in the end it was a correct decision, but it didn't produce the goal. Here's Gascoigne. Oh, brilliant! Oh, yes! Oh, yes! What a wonderful goal by Gascoigne. What a pertinent answer to all his critics. A wave of optimism swept through much of the country. A 4-1 win against the Netherlands team that was ripping itself apart put them through to the quarter-finals. But they were nervy against Spain and required a penalty shootout to edge through to the semi-finals after a goalless draw that they might well have lost. The semi-final saw them play Germany again. Another extremely tight match which either side might have snatched with chances at both ends another penalty shootout, and ultimately another Germany win. After both sides had scored their first five kicks, Stefan Kuntz scored for Germany. Gareth Southgate's penalty kick was saved, and England were out again. Couldn't get a sudden death goal in extra time, but we're this time. Gareth Southgate. But sympathy didn't really get hold of it. The goalkeeper guessed right. Poor fellow. Poor coach. The other players going to try and console Gary Southgate, but there is no consolation unless he can be saved by David Seaman. Gascoigne can't believe it. It's all down to David Seaman. 
who faces Andreas Müller. Who scores? The Germans go through again. England again suffer the torment of losing in a penalty competition in a semi-final to the Germans. The bunting didn't stay up for very long afterwards. There was serious trouble in London and elsewhere the night of the Germany semi-final. Germany, meanwhile, went on to win the tournament against the Czech Republic the following Sunday. The German supporters adopted the football's coming home anthem of the tournament for themselves. But this time, it would take England more than two decades to get to this stage of a major tournament again. Paul Gascoigne's revival would turn out to have been brief, and the England national team would soon be back in a state of decline again. The bubble of optimism didn't take long to burst, and if truth be told, it hadn't been floating around for that long in the first place. The club game, however, would continue to flourish. Television contracts would get bigger, and the gap between the richest and the rest would continue to grow. As the 20th century drew to a close, old traditions were starting to die. The clubs were in the ascendancy again, and football's transformation into a business was about to step up yet another level. Each other and roll.